And thank you, Pastor Matt, for that prayer. Uh, certainly appreciate it because as you, uh, as you prayed, the, the word for us this morning is certainly challenging, but I hope it's encouraging as well to you. So thank you for that. And uh, Pastor Josh, welcome to the team. Welcome to Central. Uh, fantastic leadership this morning. Really looking forward to working uh, with you. Uh, you know, when Pastor Matt... Um, um, several months ago talked to me about the book of Hosea and the series that he had planned for uh, our church, both campuses this summer, um, looking at the various portraits uh, that God paints in this book for us of his redeeming love. Uh, I think that we both agreed in, in the conversation um, that it would be good for me to preach this one because of its highly agrarian nature. Pastor Matt had put uh, an utterly stubborn heifer, and I kind of changed that because I liked it. So when I, when I heard this stubborn heifer uh, portrait, I said to Matt, I want that one. And when I discovered uh, that this text also has to do with other aspects of agriculture, such as treading grain, sowing and reaping, I got even more excited to deliver uh, God's word to you today. Because Hosea chapter 10 evokes some really wonderful memories for me of the farm that I grew up on in uh, rural Saskatchewan, and also of the first church that Marcy and I were privileged, uh, privileged to shepherd in, in rural Saskatchewan as well, right in the middle of like nowhere, where um, our congregation, most of them, raised uh, cattle and grew grain, um, as did we in our farm, only on a much smaller scale. In fact, I remember uh, at our first church, we lived in a manse in a parsonage, and right across the road, every spring, we would see about two to 300 calves leaping and bouncing through uh, the pasture as we had a major uh, cow-calf operation just across the road from us, and, and a guy, his family, who attended our church was one of our elders, a wonderful man. So I have so many good memories um, of that. Um, our farm, the farm that I grew up on, was a mixed uh, farm of grain, uh, of cattle, of chickens, turkeys, sometimes some duck we put in there. Uh, we had uh, laying hens, and we had two very, very large vegetable gardens. Uh, hence, I hate gardening to this day. <laughs> I, I, I don't appreciate yard work at all. We, um, we had a little bit of everything on the farm. Uh, we milked about a dozen cows by hand. Uh, we carried the milk back to the house by hand. We separated the, the, the cream from the milk with a hand crank separator. Anybody familiar with, with those things? Awesome. And uh, I remember the day that we got uh, an electric separator, and I thought I was in heaven until I realized that all of the discs and the million other parts still had to be washed and dried by hand. So what our cows produced, um, n not milk, but uh, livestock, um, we kept usually two, steer, two steers every year that we raised uh, for beef. Uh, we kept one for ourselves, another one we would usually give to another family. And, um, and the rest of what our cows produced, we, we put to market at the Saskatoon Auction Mart. That's another story, another illustration for another sermon. Awesome place on a Saturday morning. But we had a small farm. We didn't have a lot of money, and so my dad didn't have a cattle trailer. Um, so he got creative and he built walls out of plywood and lumber for the box of our pickup truck and he built a ramp for which we could get the animals onto the truck to take to market. <laughs> yeah. 
You know where this is going. I have vivid memories of standing beside my father in his complete frustration, trying desperately to, to get a stubborn heifer, a young heifer, maybe a year old, 800 pounds, that absolutely will, will not do what you want her to do, trying to get her onto that truck. It was uh, an exercise in frustration for my, for my father. This is what our text says this morning. Hosea chapter 10, beginning at verse 11. It says, Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh. So I will put a yoke on her fair neck. I will drive Ephraim. Judah must plow and Jacob must break up the ground. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness on you. But you have planted wickedness. You have reaped evil. You have eaten the fruit of deception. Because you have depended on your own strength and on your many warriors, the roar of battle will rise against your people so that all your fortresses will be devastated. As Shalman devastated Beth Arbel on the day of battle, when mothers were dashed to the ground with their children, thus will it happen to you, O Bethel, because your wickedness is great. When that day dawns, the king of Israel will be completely destroyed. Let's pray, because this is a tough passage for us this morning. Lord, um, we, we need you, <laughs> your spirit, to direct your word uh, deep into our hearts. Um, so unstop our ears and open our, our minds and our hearts, most of all, Lord, to be changed by you, that we might understand, not just understand intellectually, but understand spiritually in our hearts what it is that you want to say to us today. So Lord, we need that. I need that as I try to um, explain this text this morning. So we love you, Lord. We thank you for your word and the power within it to, um, to comfort us and encourage us, but also to bring deep challenge and conviction. So would you do that this morning, Lord, for all of us? In Jesus' name, amen. So verse 12 um, of our text really is the crowning jewel of this passage. I'm going to talk about that in a bit, but verse 11 is the key. So we can't really understand the rest of the text until we get a good grasp on verse 11. And it gets a little tricky because verse 11 reads quite differently from translation to translation. And I'm going to show you in a minute what I mean. So let's, there's, a, there's a slide behind you that shows um, from the NIV, which I, I read from earlier, and also from the ESV, the English Standard Version. I'm going to read verse 11 two more times. Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh. So I'll put a yoke on her fair neck. I will drive Ephraim, Judah must plow, and Jacob must break up the ground. ESV says this, Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck, but I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. Now in the original language, which is... Uh, uh, of which the ESV is much closer to really in this instance, for sure, it, it, it reads something like this, very close to the English standard. Ephraim was a heifer trained that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. Will put to the yoke Ephraim, must plow Judah, must harrow Jacob. 
So seeing as the, the ESV is much more you know, close to the original, I think, it's more literal, uh, it's going to help us, I think, better understand what God wants to say to us this morning. And here's what I believe uh, verse 11 means. This is the key to this. This is how I'm interpreting what God is saying to us this morning. God, in this text, is speaking to his people through a prophet that he chose, Hosea. So he's speaking to his people primarily in the northern part of the kingdom of God, of Israel, a kingdom which at this point was divided. Uh, the northern part retained the name Israel and was made up of ten tribes, of which uh, Ephraim was one. Um, Ephraim and Manasseh were the, the sons of Joseph, the, the grandsons of Jacob, were blessed by Jacob. Um, Samaria was the capital of Israel and these ten, these ten regions or tribes. The southern kingdom was named Judah, and it was made up of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, with Jerusalem as its capital. So we have a kingdom here that's divided, and Hosea was told by God to go speak to the people in the north, primarily. And God is saying here that at one point in their history, Ephraim was like a young, enthusiastic heifer that was trained. I'm going to stop right there. The word trained meant that she was teachable. She was able to learn and receive instruction. She was diligent. She was skilled. One commentator said she was one who had information and responded properly to it with regular action, implying acceptance of or submission to the information. So this is who Ephraim was. Ephraim was this trained heifer who was submissive to the things of God, who was willing to be teachable, moldable, a soft heart, able to receive instruction from God. And then the verse goes on to say, she was a trained heifer who loved. I'm going to stop there again. The word loved here is the same word in Hebrew that is used of the marriage relationship. It's interesting. It means desire, affection, closeness, intimacy, strong emotional attachment. This is who Ephraim was. She had a relationship with God. She was soft. She allowed God to lead her and she was submissive to what he wanted for, for her and his purposes. Who loved to thresh. Threshing, um, the literal word is to trample grain, uh, the stalks and the heads in order to separate the fruit parts. It literally means to crush or to destroy, to get the kernels out of the, out of the heads, right? In the kingdom of God, to thresh means to engage in the purposes of God, the work of the kingdom. That's what it means to thresh. Um, and so, as a result, um, God said, I spared her fair neck. I spared means I passed over, I crossed over her fair neck, um, her fair neck, the, the word fair is used because it means that she was beautiful. She was prosperous. She was enjoying the blessing of God, happy. And, um, and then it says, and so there was no reason at that point to restrain her, to put a yoke on her. But now God says, I will put her, Ephraim, to the yoke and drive her. I literally will bind her on the back of the neck, that's the strongest part of the neck on which burdens are bound, on which a yoke is put to keep an animal in line, just as all of my people, just as I will to all of my people who have become really stubborn and rebellious. 
He also talks of Judah. We don't have time to get into must plow Judah and must harrow Jacob to bring the people of God, his people, back into line with his purposes and his plan and what he wanted for their lives. So this is what I believe verse 11 to mean. So why? The question is why? What happened? Why the shift from this young, free, frolicking, obedient heifer uh, fulfilling the purposes of God that, to one that has to be subdued, um, to be yoked, to be driven? So to understand what God is doing, we've got to back up a little bit. First, a couple of verses, then we're going to back up a few chapters. So we have to take a look at context. First of all, let's look at immediate context. Verses 9 and 10, it says this. Since the days of Gibeah, Gibeah, by the way, used to be uh, the capital of, of uh, the northern kingdom before Samaria. Since the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel, and there you have remained. Did not war overtake the evildoers in Gibeah? When I please, I will punish them. Nations will gather against them to put them in bonds, in bondage for their double sin. If you were to go back to the book of Judges, which I would encourage you to do tonight for your devotions or whatever tomorrow morning, go to Judges chapter 19 and 20 and you will read there of a horrific injustice that took place at Gibeah, which I believe this is referenced to right here. It was an injustice that took place against a Levite who, and his concubine who were from the hill country of Ephraim in the northern part of Israel, and this, uh, I'm, I'm not going to, I don't have time really to go into that story, but it's very graphic and it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's a horrific story. And this Ephraimite later, uh, the, this Levite from Ephraim later led the charge together with his tribe, the Ephraimites and all of Israel against Gibeah for this sin, this injustice that took place within the walls of that city. So Ephraim, who was once enthusiastically engaged in the purposes of God by literally threshing, by literally meeting out justice, by bringing destruction upon Gibeah for this great injustice that had occurred in the Israel from purging wickedness from the land, really, was now no different than Gibeah. She was full of sin, she was full of wickedness and rebellion. So how did Ephraim go from being a trained heifer to having a yoke bound to her neck. Let's look at more context. Let's go all the way back to Hosea chapter 4 and verses 16 and 17. Hosea 4, 16 and 17. The Israelites are stubborn, like a stubborn heifer. How then can the Lord pasture them like lambs in a meadow? You see God's heart for his people? <laughs> he wants the best for us people. He church. He, he, he wants to pasture us. He wants to feed us. He wants to lead us beside still waters. He wants to restore our soul. But he can't do it when we're, when we're stubborn. The Israelites were stubborn like a stubborn heifer. How then can the Lord pasture them like lambs in a meadow? Ephraim is joined. Here's the key. Ephraim is joined. She is yoked to idols. Leave them alone. Leave them alone. The idol worship primarily was that of the Canaanite people around them, Baal worship. Israel had got to a point already uh, where there was so much injustice and so much wickedness happening, adultery and murder. And it was, there was just gross stuff happening. 
let's look at stubbornness. This is really at the heart of the issue, literally. It's about the heart this morning. The meaning of this word stubborn here in Hosea 4 is literally to be defiant, to be obstinate, rebellious, not willing to change behavior in any regard, with a feature that the current behavior is in open defiance to authority. It, it also means to backslide, to revolt. You see, Ephraim was no longer submissive, teachable, obedient. She was no longer a partner of God that she once was because she had joined herself, she had yoked herself to idols and their practices. And so because of that, Ephraim became stubborn, defiant to the authority of God in her life, insisting on doing things her own way, not the way God had purposed for her. And so God said, but not after much pleading with her and begging her. In fact, I, I looked at this word stubborn in Scripture, and, and, and every time you find it, you find God there pleading with his people not to go down that path. Don't do it. After much pleading, God said, fine, if that is the way you want it, I release you, have at it, but it won't be pretty. It will lead you only into deep, deep bondage, which it did. Just like, remember, um, Hosea's wife Gomer was in bondage and had to be redeemed. This was Ephraim, in deep bondage. But because God loved her so much as a husband, he yoked her because God's desire for her was that she might once again align herself to his purposes, to his leadership, to do things the way God wanted them done so that she might once again prosper and be abundant, once again be productive for the kingdom of God. And so in verse 12, we see what God's purpose and desire was for his people. Why does an animal need to be yoked? So that it can work, right? So that it can, it can pull a straight path, so that it can plow a field, so that it can engage in kingdom work. So, uh, so let's talk now about sowing and reaping. We've talked about stubbornness, but um, God's purposes was that, first of all, that his people sow in righteousness and reap unfailing love. To sow means to scatter good seed on, on tilled ground, ground that has been plowed, that is ready to receive the seed. To sow, literally, it also means to make pregnant. It means to fertilize so that growth can happen, so that the kingdom of God can grow. He said, sow righteousness. Righteousness means honesty, justice, to do good acts, good deeds, to be fair, to live the way God wants us to live. And if, and if you would do that, God said, you will reap, you will gather in a harvest of steadfast love. Steadfast love is an amazing thing. This word, it, it, there's really no words to really describe it. It is the loyal, unending, uh, faithful, loving kindness, the grace, the mercy, the favor of God in our lives. That's, that's what he wants for us. That's what he wants for you this morning. That's what he wants for me. But it goes on. It says, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap the fruit of unfailing love, and break up your unplowed ground. The word is literally, literally follow ground. It is virgin soil that has never, ever been turned over. And I believe this to mean that God wants, wanted his people to engage in his uh, kingdom purposes to the nations around them that didn't know them. They were supposed to be a blessing to those nations, a light to the nations, just like the church now is supposed to be a light to the nations, to go in and break uh, uh, 
to break fallow ground, virgin soil, where people don't know the Lord. But how do we do that when we're stubborn? Break up your unplowed ground, for it is time to seek the Lord. It is a time that word seek means to desire to have a relationship with the Lord. Is that the greatest desire of your heart and mind, that people have a relationship with Christ? To, have a, uh, to, to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness on you. I love that word, showers. It, it, it means rain. It's like standing in a rain. It's another wonderful memory of I, I have as a kid on the farm too. It rained very little in the summer on the prairies, but when it rained, it rained. You know what we did? We grabbed a bar of soap and we went outside and had a shower. We did. That's how much it rained. It was awesome, so refreshing, and God wants to rain through his people showers of righteousness, but this righteousness is different from the other word, the righteousness that was spoken of earlier. This righteousness means justification, deliverance, prosperity of God as covenant keeping in redemption as messianic king of people enjoying salvation. God wants his people to bring his word to the nations, to the unplowed fields that they might be saved. And Ephraim was doing none of this because she had joined herself to idols and engaged in wickedness, and that's so we see next. Instead of sowing in righteousness, they were, and, and reaping unfailing love, they were sowing seeds of wickedness. They were eating the fruit of deception, and reaping the fruit of those things which was evil and destruction. They were sowing iniquity. The word means evil, injustice. They were violating the moral and civil law and code of God on a regular basis, and they didn't care. They were eating the fruit of deception. This word deception is quite interesting. It means delusion. It means not conforming to reality. This is another interesting meaning of the word. It means to be gaunt, unhealthy, underweight, skinny. Unhealthy. Makes me think of David when he had engaged in wicked behavior, iniquity before the Lord. And he committed adultery and he committed murder. And when he kept silent and didn't confess those things, Scripture says, David said, my bones wasted away. He became gaunt. That's the fruit of deception. That's the fruit of wickedness. It's devastation. It destroys people. It destroys families. It ravages people. So what God is saying here to his people is, this is what you are doing. This is what I want you to do. Any questions? <laughs> it's a quote from one of my favorite movies, okay? I have so much more I could say about this text, but I want to bring some conclusion and some application here because you see, um, this is for us now. This is for our lives. This isn't about just people, you know, thousands of years ago who lived in, in the northern part of Israel. We are the people of God. So what does this mean for us? And you know, as I studied this text this past week, I had to ask myself three questions. Actually, there's more within that, but three basic questions, which I'm going to request that you also ask of yourself this morning. Okay, let's do this together. Number one, am I a stubborn heifer or am I a submissive helper? God has designed his bride to be a helpmeet, to be submissive to the leadership of a loving husband, and together 
to fulfill his purposes. So what, what am I? I searched the scripture a bit more on, on this word stubbornness, and here's what I found. It means that I continue to sin. I know that there's sin in my life, but I don't stop it. It means that I reject the counsel of other people. I refuse to pay attention to what people are saying, to what God is saying through his word, through his spirit, through his people. These are all in the Old Testament. It's very fascinating. It, it means to literally turn my back on God and to make my heart hard. Essentially, to be stubborn means that I don't want, that I want my own way and I don't want any other way I decide what's right or wrong. I won't listen. I will not change my ways, period. So in light of that, I needed to ask myself some more questions, and I, and I said, Alden, how teachable, how teachable are you? <laughs> Am I open to correction? Or do I insist on my own way? Do I welcome or do I spurn discipline in my life? Proverbs 12, verse 1 says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. I know we're not supposed to use that word, but it's in the Bible, so I just did. There you go. <laughs> to hate correction is stupid. And here's why rejecting discipline and hating correction, both of which God brings into my life, he will bring into your life if necessary, because he loves you, because he loves me, Here's why hating correction and, and discipline is stupid. Because when we do that, when we reject it, God will give us over to the very things that lead us into bondage. And this is what his word says in Psalm 81. Listen to Psalm 81. I'm going to start at verse 8. Hear, O my people, and I will warn you, if you would, but listen to me, O Israel, you shall have no foreign God among you. There shall be no idolatry. If anything in our lives is more important than Jesus, God is warning us. He says, you shall not bow down to an alien God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out, up out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I am Jesus who freed you from bondage, who gave his life on the cross for you. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. But my people would not listen to me, verse 11. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. And you know what? It is a scary and a very stupid thing to be given over to our own devices. I want you to hear this morning what H.A. Um, uh, Ironside, it's a book that Pastor Matt gave me to look at this week, what he has to say a little bit on this text. He said, join to idols, let them alone. Nothing can be more solemn than this statement. It is though God had exhausted every possible means for their recovery, save one, giving them up to learn by bitter experience what they would not take to heart in any other way. In the New Testament, it answers to being delivered unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. When a soul proves utterly stubborn and willful, God may, at God may at times say of him, as he said of Israel, he is joined to idols. Further reproof or brotherly correction is useless. Let him severely alone until he learns in Satan's sieve how far from God he has gotten and how low he has fallen. 
Observe that only after the failure of all other means to recover the wanderer does God deal soul with our souls. When his patience had come to an end, as it were, he gave up Ephraim. From the first he had borne with them, ministered to them, chastened, entreated, and disciplined them, but all had been in vain. They were set on having their own way. At last, because he loved them too much to finally give up on them forever, he says, let them alone. Now they are where they shall learn by sad experience the full result of departure in heart from himself. They shall be given up to their own heart's lust until they should be ashamed because of their sacrifices. I love this next part. Ironside said, How deep the love that breathes through all of this unhappy description. How tender the grace that persisted to the end in seeking the restoration of those who were so worthless and so undeserving. Friends, that's, that's me. That's you. So undeserving and yet pursued by the loving, the tender, loving grace of God. And for us too, Ironside said, it is precious to know that his grace is unchanging and that if saved by the precious blood of Christ, we are the objects of that faithful and forbearing love that never turns aside. Surely nothing should have so powerful an effect upon our ways as the fact that our waywardness has not and cannot quench his love. Can I get an amen to that? No change in us results in any corresponding change in him. And thank God it doesn't, or we would all be doomed to destruction. But for the grace of God. This is what a God wants for us this morning, what he wants for me, what he wants for you. Are we stubborn or are we submissive? Are, I want to ask you this morning, are you in bondage? Are you in a place this morning where, where you are in bondage to something? Would you submit? Would you stop struggling? Would you be freed from your bondage, from your own devices? Would you this morning soften your heart before God and respond to his love for you today? Would you? Because when we submit to his love and grace and when we do things God's way, then answering the next question becomes really easy. The second question I had to ask myself is, like, am I stubborn or am I what? Is, is what am I sowing? What am I sowing? What applied to the Israelites applies to, to me too. What, what I reap, I will sow. It is called the law of the harvest. And Paul talks about it in Galatians. He said, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, that is his flesh, from that nature will reap destruction. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> I think God said that in Hosea somewhere. But the one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. I like what Job said, chapter 4, verse 8. He said, As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. So what are you sowing this morning? Are you sowing good seed for the kingdom of God or are you sowing wild oats? You know, the Urban Dictionary defines wild oats. You've heard of that expression before, sowing your oats, right? It means to lead a promiscuous and self-indulgent lifestyle on many levels. And you know what? It's destructive. That's what God is saying. It's destructive. Don't play around with that. Listen, here's some here this morning, and I'm including myself in this. I, I preach to myself first. At this very moment, maybe sowing to please the flesh. 
It's a constant battle, isn't it? You're planting evil. And you are, or you soon will be on a destructive path. And I need to, as a, as a preacher of the word, to tell you to stop and to warn you. And I do it because I love you. I'm not naive enough to think that people here this morning might be having an affair. They might be abusing alcohol or drugs or sex or other people generally being involved in things that God does not want for you and I beg you this morning to stop it's destructive not only to you but to the people around you your family your friends your church get some help talk to someone there's this thing called freedom session which we're exploring it's awesome stuff and 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 we we hope to do these things to give people opportunities to be set free from bondage Take it seriously. The second thing is to sow to please the Spirit, which leads to eternal life. God literally wants to shower and to rain righteousness, deliverance, redemption, salvation through us, through the people of God, but he can't do that if we're not sowing to, to please the Spirit. There's many ways we can do this, and this is why we have the mission statement that we have. We exist as a church. We believe that we exist to be authentic, submissive, obedient, soft followers of God, of Jesus, and to lead others to follow him by loving God. Here's the good, sowing the good seed, by loving God, by loving people, by serving our world. So how do we do this? Oh, there's so many ways to look after the orphans and the widows, to keep ourselves from being polluted, to cook a meal at Cyrus Center, to help with the Ed Center breakfast, to volunteer at the District Youth in Agassiz, to watch the babies in the nursery, to... You name it. To, to turn a sinner from the error of his ways. That's what Jesus said sowing is in Matthew 13. To spread the message of the kingdom of God because he wants people to be saved. And how can they be saved in a church that is not sowing good seed? There's so much good seed being sown here. But I also have to bring the message and warn us against sowing to destruction. Am I putting good seed or weed seed into the ground? Am I a helper or an enemy of the kingdom of God? Am I rescuing sinners or am I causing them to sin because my actions have impact on others? Here's my final thought this morning. Who am I yoked with? That's a question I had to ask. All of this comes down to who I'm aligning myself with. Uh, Paul said in Second Corinthians, do not be yoked together with unbelievers for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness what harmony is there between Christ and Belial what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever what agreement is there between the temple of God and of idols for we are the temple of the living God as God has said I will live with them and walk among them I will be their God and they will be my people and God wants us to be truly be his people to sow a good seed in the kingdom for his glory and for the salvation of many people James said, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, whoever chooses to be a friend of the world has become an enemy of God. To whom am I yoked? I like this verse in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, do not be misled. A bad company corrupts good character. You see, when we're hanging around the wrong people, we're sowing to destruction. And here's the very end of the matter. 
Jesus wants us to be yoked to him. He said so in Matthew 11. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Are you tired this morning? Are you tired of bondage? Are you tired of struggling on your own? Jesus said, come to me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In other words, am I going to keep doing it my way or am I going to do it Jesus' way? And I want to tell you this morning, his way is much, much better, much easier. Wouldn't you agree? Amen. Proverbs 15.10 says, Stern discipline awaits anyone who leaves the path. The one who hates correction will die. So I challenge you, urge you, put yourself on the path to life. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. He demonstrated that by giving his own life, by laying his life down on the cross for you. Would you yoke yourself this morning with Jesus? Would you put an end to your stubbornness? Do you this morning have Christ as your partner? Do you have a relationship with him? Do you have eternal life? John said to the early church, and this is the testimony, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you know this morning? Do you know? Let's bow in prayer together, and we're going to respond in worship again as Pastor Josh comes and leads us. But as I pray, I just want to direct you to the connecting card that's in front of you. Maybe this message today has stirred something up in your soul where you need to maybe put some things right. Or maybe you say, yes, I want to yoke myself with Christ. You have questions about that. On the connecting card, there's a, there's a places there to respond. Just check those, and one of us would love to follow up with you. We'd love to do that. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it challenges so much and yet it brings so much hope that we can be yoked with you and we can be spared from so much disaster in our lives. So Lord, I pray that where people this morning are in bondage or they don't know you and they don't understand your grace, I pray that you would bring about change. I pray that for my own heart. Help me to walk closer in line with you, Jesus. That's what I want. And so, Lord, would you just free us? Would you release us? We thank you for your blood that was shed by which you came to release us from the yoke of bondage and slavery. We praise you, Lord, that you did this for us. I accept that again afresh today, Lord, and I say thank you in your name.